Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. Today's show is about Australia. You might be asking, why Australia? Well, first of all, all of my bosses are Australian, so I wasn't left with much of a choice. But the other reason, the real reason, is that as the world's attention shifts to East Asia and the Pacific, Australia is really becoming a central member of the Western Liberal Alliance. And the word becoming doesn't quite give enough credit. You know, Australian soldiers fought on the Western Front during World War I. They led bombing campaigns over Nazi Germany during World War II. In other words, not only have they long been a member of the Western Alliance, but they've crossed multiple oceans and continents to prove it. But if trends continue, if the next conflict really is centered around the Pacific, then Australia won't need to cross oceans to get involved. The conflict will be right on their doorstep. They'll be right on the front line. And for a country of only 25 million people, that's a heavy burden to handle. That's why I wanted to have on Dave Sharma. He is a former member of Australian Parliament from the center-right Liberal Party, a foreign policy expert who's been posted to Australian embassies around the world and served as Australia's ambassador to Israel. Pretty cool guy. And best of all, he joins me next. Hi, Dave. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Ethan. Great to join you. Oh well, yeah, it's your it's your morning. We should, we should, uh, we, should we should say it's <laughs> seven p.m. my time. But but Dave is uh, speaking to us at nine a.m. from Sydney. So uh, I really appreciate. Uh, I hope you've had some some coffee. Um, I've got one right next to me here, Ethan. Oh, oh perfect. I'm gonna need to grab one too. Yeah, it's been a long day. Um, <laughs> so we've got a really wide range of, of topics to discuss today. Uh, but I'm lucky to have. Uh, not only someone living in Australia, but someone who's an expert on Australian foreign policy with me. So we've got to start with the big news, which is AUKUS. Uh, there's been a big focus on the nuclear-powered submarine part of the deal. But what else does it include? So, so look, it's it's a trilateral alliance, if you like, between two of our Australia's longest and deepest security and strategic partners, the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, these are the two countries to whom we've always looked since Australia was founded as a, a modern nation for our security uh, to help keep our region stable. And the initial part of the deal is very much focused on nuclear-powered submarines in helping Australia procure and build ourselves nuclear-powered submarines. But it does also have other elements, uh, hypersonic weapons, um, artificial intelligence, cyber cooperation and coordination. Uh, a lot of the new frontiers if you like, of armed conflict or, or statecraft, depending on how you look at it. Uh, and we expect, you know, this is the procurement of nuclear-powered submarines is, is, is a big project and that will be pretty time-consuming. But over time and with other parts of our government and machinery, we'll be pursuing these other um, advanced weapon systems and advanced capabilities alongside those. I think we will probably all know the answer to this question, but this is a big deal. And it's sending a really strong message. And the question that I have for you is, who is Australia sending that message to? Look, we're sending it to the to the region at large, but obviously the the most concerning power and the largest power in our region and the one whose behaviour has changed the most dramatically over the past decade is the People's Republic of China, uh, which has shown itself to disregard international laws and norms to have an expansionist uh, and sort of non-status quo set of foreign policies that seemingly wants to reorder 
the power structures and the normative structures in the region, but beyond that, the globe. And we are in the camp uh, of seeking to preserve that order, that sort of liberal and open regional order, because in our view, it's not only in Australia's best interest, but it's in the best interest of the region. I mean, the the period since the end of the Second World War um, in East Asia has been characterised by unparalleled peace, um, unparalleled growth in trade, unparalleled uh, growth in prosperity, um, and the lifting of you know hundreds of millions of people, including China's own citizens, out of poverty. And we think that regional order serves the interests of humanity best, and that's why we're so keen to preserve it. And, and nuclear-powered submarines, I think, is, is a way to demonstrate our commitment to that order, but also to make sure that we create a sustainable military balance, if you like, in that order that is in favour of uh, peace um, and that discourages any actor, uh, any powerful actor from seeking to overturn that order. What specifically do you feel like has, has changed in the past 10 years? You've been you know, in politics for a long time, in the foreign policy space for a long time. What's different about China's behaviour? Well, I think basically their doctrine has changed. Deng Xiaoping's famous maxim was to um, hide your light and bide your time, for China to focus on its internal development, its economic development, to um, largely maintain cordial relations with the outside world that helped promote China's internal development and helped promote China's growth in trade. What we've seen since Xi Jinping took over the presidency in 2012 uh, is that China is moving in a more assertive, um, more ambitious and more expansionist direction. Uh, And I think it it reflects a few things. I think it it partly reflects his own worldview and ideology, uh, but it also reflects fundamentally the increase in China's power as as a geopolitical actor. I think they no longer think of themselves as as needing to be price takers in the international system. They think they can, and it's true to a degree, they can can set the prices, they can make the weather. And so what we're now seeing, I think, the inklings of is what their preferred regional and global order looks like because they've got the means to do it, they've got the confidence to do it, uh, and their own belief, um, rightly or wrongly, and this is infused within, you know, Communist Party narrative and doctrine and the, uh, the, the messages that come out of these plenums and people's assemblies, their overarching belief is that, is that the West is in decline, that we're seeing uh, great changes unseen in a century, which is their code for a reshuffling of the global power order. Um, they basically believe that time is on their side and, and history uh, is on their side. And so this is why I think we see them stepping out more and seeking to make a bigger imprint on the world and to restructure the world in a way that that aligns with their values and their interests. So then the, the message seems to be that the West, uh, of AUKUS that is, that the West is not in decline, that the West can behave in the same assertive way that China does. How has China responded to the announcement of AUKUS? They're, they're very hostile to AUKUS. They're, they're hostile to AUKUS. They're hostile to the Quad, which is the, the grouping which involves India, Japan, the United States and Australia. Um, it's, it's a loose and informal grouping, but it coordinates on security and uh, intelligence and defence matters and things like that. Um, and, and China is hostile to it because, firstly, they see a, a, a coalition that's slowly building to um, balance their rise in power, if you like, and to preserve the regional order. Um, but secondly, their, their preferred diplomatic strategy has always been to 
divide and conquer, to separate countries out, to stop alliances forming against them, to generally pick off one country and another and intimidate or coerce them into um, into accepting China's position on international issues. And what this shows is that the rest of the world and the rest of the region is able to coordinate and organise themselves such that they can't be picked off in that sort of a way. So um, they're opposed to AUKUS in principle. They're opposed to Australia having nuclear-powered submarines, but they're also opposed to what it represents geopolitically, which is effectively a balancing coalition being assembled. And and how about the, the politics of AUKUS in Australia? Is, is there the same, you know, fr- from my side of the, the Pacific, uh, we're seeing some pretty remarkable bedfellows emerging across political divisions with the same interest of countering China. Is there that same broad support for countering China uh, on your side of the Pacific? Look, there is very much, and I think... Um, this has changed pretty remarkably in Australia over the last, you know, five to seven years, I'd say. I think in the same way that the, the centre of gravity on this issue has changed in the United States as well. If you look at um, polling of public attitudes towards China, the Australian public increasingly sees China as a threat and as hostile, and that was not true, you know, seven to ten years ago. Uh, China certainly remains an important economic partner for, for Australia and an important trading partner. But there's a much more realistic sense about what their aims are as a strategic power. So the thing I think I've found remarkable in Australia is that AUKUS involves uh, or entails quite broad public support and it's bipartisan um, political support. Traditionally, the, the left of Australian politics has been certainly hostile to anything with nuclear in it, be it nuclear energy, uh, nuclear power and certainly um, nuclear weapons. Uh, that's you know preserve of European and um, Australian left of centre political movements, but they've also generally been the left of Australian politics quite um, reluctant participants in the US alliance. Basically, they've, there's always been a degree of anti-Americanism uh, about them. Again, the same as you might see in, in Europe in traditional left of centre movements. But um, the Labor Party in Australia, which is now in government is in full support of AUKUS and they're largely continuing um, the decisions and the announcements that were made in this direction by the previous government, which was a centre-right government. Uh, and even parts of the Labor Party that would, you know, traditionally oppose this have been pretty quiet. Um, uh, and that's been quite remarkable, I think. Yeah, uh, you you wrote a fascinating piece about this, that, that Labor is sort of acting with a, a sense of bravado and, and, and really setting the terms of relations with Beijing. You also mentioned just there that things have coalesced in the last five to seven years. And when you said the, the, the word five, the number five, that stuck out to me because about five years ago, uh, a trade war started with, with China. Does, was, that a, was that a turning point in Australian politics? Yeah, I think very much. I mean, I think when our bilateral relationship with China got into difficulties and it was over a, a host of things that we'd done that we thought were fundamentally in Australia's national interest but that China objected to. These were things like um, banning Huawei from our 5G network, rejecting certain um, foreign investment proposals by Chinese state-owned enterprises, passing laws against foreign interference within our political system. Uh, All these things China disliked and that eventually um, I think the ultimate trigger was a, our support for an international inquiry into the origins of COVID, uh, of COVID nineteen, with a view to learning lessons. 
Beijing found that very offensive and, and they started a, a campaign effectively of, of trade intimidation and trade coercion. Uh, we saw number of tourists to Australia drop dramatically, students discouraged, Chinese students discouraged from studying in Australia, export bans placed on things like beef and barley, wine, rock lobsters, a large number of agricultural exports, um, and a, a pretty hostile attitude in diplomatic and international forums. And generally speaking, the Australian public saw this for what it was, which was an, a, an attempt to use the diplomatic and trade and economic muscle of a bigger country to intimidate a smaller country. And if there's one thing that unites most of Australians, we, we don't like a bully. Uh, and that's that's a surefire way to get everyone sort of behind you if, if you if you're the underdog in Australia and you're standing up to someone who's seeking to intimidate you or coerce you that really unites the Australian public uh, and I think that's that's really what uh, people saw this not as legitimate countermeasures by China not as a le- legitimate point of difference in views they, they saw China trying to use their economic muscle to change the direction of Australian policy. Uh, and that really helped galvanise, if you like, public opinion um, and political sentiment towards resisting any capitulation on these, on these fronts. I suppose there are worse things than having a, a surplus of lobsters. I'm happy to send you uh, my address directly <laughs> if you can send some of those over. The interesting thing was, yeah, the, the, the price of seafood, you know, went to rock bottom. So suddenly we could afford things that usually were solely the preserve of exports. I, I can't tell you how many rock lobsters I ate over, you know, Christmas two years ago. <laughs> Tough life. Uh, you mentioned there, and I, I, we can touch on this briefly, um, but you mentioned there that, that the, the COVID investigation was a big trigger of the trade war. You endorsed that sort of investigation. Do you feel like questions about the, the origin of COVID-19 have been adequately answered? No, I don't think they have been. I mean, I think, look, our, our big issue, and I think this is one that the world shared, was that um, China was insufficiently transparent at the early stages of this outbreak. Um, they clearly sought to, to cover it up and, and muffle news about the emergence of, of this outbreak, which meant in consequence that countries around the world were slower to impose um, border controls, um, uh, greater screening, public health measures and things like that. And as a result, COVID-19 escaped, you know, it got to Italy very quickly, it got to Korea very quickly, it got to Iran, it got to got all around the world and got into basically the global movement of people, which which meant that the pandemic accelerated much more quickly uh, and became much more widespread than would have otherwise been the case. Now, we weren't seeking an inquiry to name and shame China, but what we wanted to make sure was that the World Health Organization had the powers it needed to do to, to monitor these outbreaks at an earlier stage and that countries were cooperating with this because we all have an interest as a global community. I mean, this is one of these fundamental global public goods where it's in the interest of every nation to cooperate. We all have an interest in a global health system which alerts us early to the risks of possible pandemics um, and that can take measures quickly in order to allow us to do this. And I uh, I don't. I still don't think we've got sufficient transparency from China about the origins of this. You know, we still don't know. There's competing assessments within the U.S. intelligence community. Did this come from a wet market? Was it an outbreak from a lab? There will almost certainly be another pandemic of some sort. Maybe it won't be as widespread as COVID nineteen, but the general pattern is these sorts of things tend to emerge every 
you know, five to 10 years, whether it's avian flu or SARS or, you know, some sort of pandemic type disease. And, and we need better public health infrastructure, global public health infrastructure to combat this. And, um, China does not seem to be interested in constructing this because they see it as an infringement upon their own state sovereignty. Today's show is sponsored by Power Corridor. Power Corridor is the intersection of Wall Street and D.C. where money collides with power. It's where elections are decided, corporate dynasties are born or they die, and the decisions that shape the future of the United States are made. Written by Leah McGrath Goodman, an investigative journalist with a long track record of disruptive journalism, and brought to you by The Daily Upside, Power Corridor is your key to understanding the people and forces shaping our world. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. Australia's competition with China is multidimensional. We've, we've touched on a lot of it. You know, it's, it's happening in cyberspace. It's happening under oceans. It's obviously happening at customs stations. Uh, but there's a soft power competition underway too, especially in the Pacific. Is Australia able to compete with China for diplomatic influence in the region? So, look, that's a that's a, a continual challenge for us because obviously, you know, look, Australia is not a peer competitor of China. You know, China is a nation of 1.3 billion. Australia is a nation of, you know, 25 million. Um, the Australian economy is about, you know, $2 trillion at US GDP levels. China's economy is several times larger. So we can't compete with them pound for pound or dollar for dollar, which means we need to be cleverer, we need to be asymmetric, we need to focus on our strengths and particular advantages. Uh, and the Pacific, the Southwest Pacific, this is countries like Fiji, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, um, is a, a theatre of competition. Uh, and look, we can't spend money the way China can there. Um, we won't hand over blank checks in the way that China does there because our public money is accountable to our taxpayers and taxpayers want to know that it's going to worthwhile projects and not supporting, you know, corruption or poor governance. But where we do have an advantage, I think, is in is in soft power. I mean, overwhelmingly, um, we have close people-to-people relationships with the Pacific Islands. Uh, the Pacific Islands naturally look to Australia in times of natural disasters or humanitarian emergencies for us to assist with recovery and rebuild efforts, which we do very well. Uh, you know, Pacific Islanders, English speakers by and large, they tend to consume Australian culture. Their children will often come to schools or universities in Australia. And that's really the area where we can offer an advantage. You know, it's it's through scholarships, it's through labour mobility, it's through people-to-people ties, it's through providing them a... Um, a neutral and objective source of news and media reporting on what's going on around the world. And that's where we really need to focus our efforts in the Pacific because there's a, certainly a reservoir of goodwill towards Australia uh, in the Pacific, um, but we need to focus on what our comparative strengths are there and, and not, to a degree, not be distracted by trying to build, you know, a huge presidential palace or, a, you know, a road to nowhere or a, a bridge that's a vanity project for a local politician. We're not going to be able to do that and we're not going to be able to match China in, in those sorts of projects. Climate is a major issue in the Pacific and, and it seems like 
taking serious or at least being perceived as taking serious climate issues is a good way to earn that goodwill that you're talking about. Uh, Australian Parliament passed a landmark bill on Thursday to tax major polluters that don't work to reduce their emissions. Is that enough or does Australia need to be doing more on climate policy? Look, I think it's you're right that this is a very important issue for the Pacific Islands and quite rightly they see climate change as an existential threat to, to, to their continuity as nations and their viability as yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Um, so I think they do want to see that we're taking Australia serious, uh, Australia is taking climate seriously. They're realistic and pragmatic enough to know that Australia's actions alone won't determine the global climate because we're, you know, we're not a big enough share of global emissions, of course. But they want to see us taking it seriously and they want to see us, I guess, at the leading edge of this international debate and international coalition to address climate change. So I think what we've done in terms of firstly committing to net zero emissions by 2050, Secondly, upgrading our emissions reduction targets by 2030 and putting in place um, concrete measures to achieve that is an important signal to them that this is a high policy priority. I think where we also need to be doing work is on what we call mitigation and adaptation measures. So helping these Pacific Island countries increase their resilience to natural disasters, um, increase their preparedness for natural disasters, um, deal with the possibilities of, of rising sea levels in terms of, you know, crop selection, um, arable land locations, all these sorts of things, port infrastructure, harbour infrastructure, uh, those sorts of things. And that's increasingly a focus of our development assistance program to these countries. It's, it's on climate change adaptation and mitigation measures. What else is in that assistance package? So that we provide a lot for um, capacity building. So this is to strengthen institutions, whether it's, you know, tax offices to help them better collect revenue or finance ministries to help them better spend revenue, whether it's the court system to make sure that there's a functioning separation of powers and and accountability, uh, whether it's the police system and the armed forces to ensure that they're professional and disciplined uh, and effective. Uh, we also provide assistance for things like um, patrol boats to help them monitor their exclusive economic zones, which for many of these nations is a huge economic asset and unfortunately exploited by unscrupulous foreign actors so to help them make sure that, you know, if, if fishing is happening in the EEZ, they're collecting a licence fee or they're getting some economic benefit from it as well. Uh, but then also more broadly economic uh, development. I mean, these countries are challenged economically by their small size, they can't get economies of scale and their remoteness from markets, which means it's, it's quite hard for them to compete you know, in a globalised economy. They need to focus on the things that they can, uh, they can do well. Uh, and quite honestly as well, a lot of these economies will and should become more, more remittance dependent because they've got good workforces but there's often not enough industry or jobs on these islands to support a skilled workforce, and that's another area where we've been increasing labour mobility, the ease with which Pacific Islanders can come and live and work in Australia and send money back home. And I think that's one of the most attractive things we've got to offer these countries because it gives their people a source of livelihood. Which which countries in Australia's general neighbourhood? Australia touches two oceans, you know, from the Pacific and Southeast Asia to the Indian Ocean. Uh, which other countries should Australia be focusing on? Look, I'd say... Um, India is a big one. Uh, India is a relationship that obviously, look, we're, we're, we're both neighbours on the Indian Ocean. We share a 
common language. We share a common love of sport. We have common institutions. We're both former uh, British colonies. But it's one of these relationships that's historically been underdone, and I think that's slowly beginning to change. It's it's partly changing because we've got a bigger Indian diaspora now. I mean, the Indian community in Australia is about you know seven or eight hundred thousand strong, which is a sizable one, and they're one of our biggest sources of migrants to Australia. Um, but increasingly, as as India as India's economy grows and becomes more outward looking and less protectionist and more interested in trade, increasingly Australia is a trading partner for India in things like uh, raw materials, but also increasingly in services and high tech manufactured goods. And you know, India ultimately um, will be a great power. It's it's not yet, but it, it will be, uh, and we think. They are well-placed to play that sort of a role and particularly given their location in the Pacific, they're, they're well-placed to provide a measure of balance and stability uh, in that region. And then I th- I'd say the other country where we always need to be doing more work and where the relationship is historically under-delivered is with Indonesia. So Indonesia's our nearest northern neighbour, aside from Papua New Guinea. It's obviously a, a massive country. I think it's the fourth most populous country in the world with about 240 million people, uh, a Muslim-majority nation but pluralistic with many other faiths represented there too. It's a country, it's a, it's a G20 economy, uh, it's a significant force within ASEAN, the 10-nation association of Southeast Asian states, uh, but it's generally speaking punched below its weight diplomatically and strategically. Uh, and we think Indonesia is a firstly a positive role model for the rest of the world, a, a tolerant Muslim-majority nation that is supporting economic development and growth and that's respectful of minorities and human rights on the whole. Uh, and we think that could play a more constructive role in the region and they're an incredibly important partner for us. Historically, that's been a, a difficult relationship for us. Um, you know, East Timor was a, was a particularly challenging period in the relationship. There continues to be separatist um, movements within West Papua or Irian Jaya, as the Indonesians call it, which is a, a, often a, a friction point in our relationship too. And, of course, we had a campaign of um, Islamist terrorism in Indonesia in the early 2000s, which targeted Australian citizens and became a, a pretty difficult issue to manage as well. But I think we're slowly putting that relationship on a more stable footing and, and long-term they will be an incredibly important partner for Australia. You mentioned a, a shared love of sport there. This is your opportunity if you want to take it to uh, do some gloating about the uh, the big uh, ODI win over India last week. Stage is yours if you want it. Look, true. We did have a, we did have a great win uh, over India in the cricket. Although in the Test series, the, this is the longer form of cricket. We didn't do nearly so well. Um, India's become. I mean, it's it's amazing how this has happened, but. India has become the sort of the powerhouse of global cricket now. Um, not only in terms of the quality of players, but where the commercial centre of the sport is. I mean, uh, the IPL, the Indian Premier League, is, is is like the English Premier League. It's the pinnacle of professional cricket these days. They've got so many viewers. They've got so much sponsorship. They've got so much TV rights that really the global cricketing world revolves around uh, India these days. And 20 years ago, that wasn't the case at all. But it's just, I think it's indicative more broadly of, of India's emergence as a major power. Well, they, they took uh, the, the cricketing title from you. I'm, I'm hoping that a nation of a billion plus people never discover basketball because then we'll be <laughs> in uh, some serious trouble at the Olympics. Uh, Dave, there's one country, uh, Israel, that we've talked a lot about on this show and that you've spent quite a bit of time in as Australia's ambassador. 
What do you make of what's been going on there in recent months? Look, I'm um, I'm a great supporter of the state of Israel. I was I was stationed there for four years uh, as ambassador. I think you know, generally speaking, Israel gets an undeservedly bad press around the world. Uh, but with all those caveats, I'm incredibly worried about what I'm seeing uh, unfold in Israel. It's it's effectively the judicial reforms that this new government of Benjamin Netanyahu is seeking to pass would effectively change quite profoundly Israel's constitutional structure. They would weaken the judiciary. It would um, basically make parliament uh, supreme and it would uh, entrench or encourage majoritarian tendencies and majoritarian government, which I think is ultimately bad for Israel. And I think, look, for a country as small and strategically vulnerable as Israel, they depend upon international goodwill and global support to survive in what's generally speaking a hostile region. Uh, And a lot of that support and goodwill comes from their resemblance to Western democratic nations like ourselves that are liberal, that are pluralistic, that respect human rights, that respect the rights of minorities, that follow the rule of law, that have an independent judiciary. All these features give give Israel incredible soft power, if you like. And what I worry is that they're eroding those assets, which are quite important. Yes, Israel's got a very capable military, the most capable in the region, but in a time of crisis, Israel needs the outside world to support them. And we've seen that, you know, throughout various existential crises Israel has been involved in because they don't have the stockpiles of munitions and material and uh, uh, and they don't have the trade routes. They don't control their own trade routes necessarily. They need the international world to be supportive of them and particularly their traditional partners. Uh, and what I think they're doing is by going down this path is eroding the basis of that support amongst publics around the world and hence amongst governments. Um, and we've seen that, you know, you know, the United States, President Biden has issued notes of concern and caution about what's going on there. The United Kingdom has, um, Australia certainly has, but even countries with whom Israel has quite recently established productive relationships, the United Arab Emirates, Jordan is just two examples. Jordan from the 1994 peace treaty, the UAE through the Abraham Accords are issuing notes of caution or warning to Israel saying, you're really making it difficult for us to continue to maintain our relationships. And and those relationships are all huge strategic assets for Israel. As much as the F-35 is, as much as their, you know, squadrons of F-16 pilots are, those relationships themselves have a strategic value. And I think I worry that by going down this path, um, Israel is diminishing the strategic value of those assets or even threatening those assets. And ultimately that will mean Israel is a, is a less secure and a more dangerous place and its its existence is going to be less certain. To bring this back to Australia uh, and, and its relations with Israel, um, they, they've been a bit strained uh, in recent months since the decision was made last October to move the embassy back to Tel Aviv from Jerusalem, where uh, it was placed during uh, starting in December of 2018, I think. Uh, did you support the move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Yes, I, I did. So I, I supported the the move that we should recognise Jerusalem as Israel's capital without prejudice, and this is an important point, without prejudice to East Jerusalem being the future capital of the Palestinian state. So uh, I think recognising Jerusalem as Israel's capital simply acknowledges the post-1948 reality um, and it treats Israel as a normal nation 
which is allowed to determine where its own capital is. I mean, you know, we wouldn't tolerate, you know, as Australia, we wouldn't tolerate the Canadians saying we're not putting our diplomatic presence in Canberra because we don't like it or we don't think it's your capital. We're going to put it in Sydney or Melbourne instead. Well, Dave, to tell you the truth, no one no one outside of Australia <laughs> knows that Canberra is the capital. <laughs> no, probably not. Probably not. So I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm educating your listeners at that. Uh, but in my view, Israel has the sovereign right to determine where its capital is. Israel has controlled West Jerusalem since 1948, all Israel's major institutions of state, the Supreme Court, the uh, the Parliament, the Knesset, the Office of the President, the Office of the Prime Minister are all there. And every foreign dignitary acknowledges as much because they go to Jerusalem to do meetings with their counterparts. So I think, you know, this conflict, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if you like, has been frozen in time for too long and, and this sort of ambiguous status about Jerusalem is something that dates from the UN partition plan of 1947, which was never ultimately accepted by the Palestinians or the Arab countries. This idea that Jerusalem is some sort of separate entity, uh, I think it's called a corpus separatum in international law, that it doesn't have any sort of sovereignty over it from any party, that's been overtaken by events and by facts on the ground. And I think the best thing we can do to help resolve this conflict ultimately uh, is to recognise reality as it is today and then move forward from that rather than trying to pretend that the clock is back in 1948 because too much has changed and too much has moved on since that time. Is is Israel still an important part or, or should it still be an important part of Israel, uh, Australia's foreign policy? Look, absolutely, and there's a number of reasons for that. Firstly, um, there's an, a, a historical uh, and values-based attachment to Israel. I mean, Australian servicemen, because it was all men at the time in the First World War, fought all through that land, the land of Palestine and subsequently Israel, um, and liberated it from the Ottoman Empire at the closing stages of the First World War. And ultimately, that's um, it was the defeat of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, which set the stage for the implementation of the Balfour Declaration. This is the actual creation of the modern state of Israel. So Australians feel like we had a hand in the creation of Israel. Australia was the president of the um, General Assembly when Israel was first admitted to the United Nations as a member state as well. Um, And we've got very strong historical ties from that time. We also share values. There's a sizable Jewish community uh, in Australia as well that's very closely attached to Israel. But also strategically, I mean, Israel is the most like-minded nation in the Middle East that fundamentally shares our outlook on the world and our values on the world and it's our closest security partner in in the Middle East. So that relationship is important. Australia inevitably finds ourselves involved in every major conflict in the Middle East, whether we like it or or not, whether it's the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war, Afghanistan, because we're generally speaking, we take our global responsibility seriously. Um, And the Middle East remains an unstable part of the world. Uh, We need close allies and partners there that we can work with and that we we trust and Israel is one of those. Okay, last question, just to sum things up and, and take us back to where we started the conversation. Uh, by joining AUKUS, Australia is signaling, intentionally or otherwise, uh, its intent to act as the vanguard of the Western alliance in the Pacific. Is Australia well positioned and prepared to play that role? Look, I think with other nations who are interested in preserving this order. Um, and I think the obvious nation there, of course, the United States, also Japan, Korea, India, 
um, to a degree, countries like Philippines, the Philippines and Indonesia as well, uh, that all have an interest in preserving the peace and prosperity uh, we've achieved. It's important, you know, it, we're not acquiring nuclear-powered submarines to be able to attack other countries. It's not an ex- it's it's a defensive move, and the idea is to make sure that we can patrol uh, and safeguard sea lanes of communication and trading routes um, a long way from Australia's shores. The, the, the geographical reality of Australia is that we're um, highly trade-dependent and highly seaborne trade-dependent, um, and at the moment, as things stand, it would be quite easy for an adversary to bring Australia to its knees, metaphorically speaking, just by cutting off our trade routes. Uh, and so for Australia, being able to safeguard our trade routes is, is existential and having nuclear-powered submarines which can stay at sea for longer, can loiter undetected for longer, can travel underwater at a higher speed um, and that can pose a risk or a complication to the calculation of adversaries because you don't know where they are and you don't know, they've got capabilities on them. It's ultimately about making sure that we deter anyone from trying to do that to us. So we see it very much as a defensive move in support of the preservation of the global order. We don't, you know, we're not part of an anti-China containment coalition. We don't think China should be contained. We think China has a rightful place to play in the world. It will be a major power. Uh, it, it deserves major power prerogatives, but we want it to abide by the existing system, which we think has served the entire world well. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, global shipping routes are, are safe and secure because I'll be expecting those lobsters uh, in no less than a week. So thanks so much, Dave, for coming on. It was great to chat. Great to speak to you, Ethan. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for tuning in. One cool thing that I get to see on the website that we use to post podcast episodes is where people are listening from. And we really do have a global audience. I mean, I see listeners from Solomon Islands, Mauritius, and the Azores. There's a listener on Baffin Island in Canada, one of the most sparsely populated places on Earth, and and really everywhere in between. But one of the places where we have the most listeners is Australia. So if you're from Australia, please write in to let us know what you thought of the episode or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts telling us how we did. And if you're somewhere else in the world, especially if you're that person on Baffin Island, write to me at ethan at internationalintrigue.io if you have ideas for episodes. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. We'll be off on Monday, but see you on Wednesday.